Lined into left center, and what a play made by the rookie Brian O'Grady. Pitch. Oh, into right field. Brian O'Grady, first big league home run. Fly ball, center field struck well. Marisnik going back at the wall. Gone! Welcome back, Brian O'Grady. All right, we are now joined by a very special guest, former MLB pitcher and current financial advisor, Jacob Turner, joins the podcast. Uh, Jacob, we're chatting here a little bit before we started recording. Thank you so much for being here. How are you, and how's everything going? I'm doing well. I appreciate you having me on, Justin, and uh, looking forward to the conversation today. Absolutely. So we wanted to start, talk a little about your baseball career. Um, I wanted to take it way back, though. I'm going to take it way back to your MLB draft um, and, and I saw you had a, pro, a very prolific high school baseball career. I was reading, I was doing my research, and I saw you had a great quote where you credited you had some very high bel- velocity back in the day. Um, and you yep. said that your arm strength came as a result of waiting to throw the curveball, I think, something like that. Um, what was your, like, your pitching philosophy like back then, and how did you evolve and add on to it over time? Well, that, that, that quote's probably right because it, it definitely dates like back – I guess 15 years ago, people used to think that I don't think people really think that anymore, but um, man, what an interesting journey, like in high school and whatnot. And to your point about like the fastball um, at the time, I'll give you a funny story. Like at the time, 94, 95 used to be really hard. And nowadays, I mean, the draft just happened. It seems like every guy that gets drafted is throwing at a minimum 95. Um, so it's, it's been interesting to see the transition over the last couple of years. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, like, it was was being patient or is being patient with the waiting to throw the breaking stuff like if younger pitchers and younger athletes ask you for advice on like what they should be doing is that something that you still kind of preach and, and believe into this day i i don't know i everybody always preached that to me when i was younger like oh don't throw a slider until your you know your growth plates develop or if you start throwing a curveball too early it could hurt you but then i can remember i grew up a cardinals fan so daryl kyle he used to be a pitcher for the cardinals had an amazing curveball and I can remember a story that they did on Daryl Kyle and he was talking about how he used to throw that curveball since he was like eight years old so I don't know how much science is behind it nowadays there's so much more science and data behind everybody's opinion about baseball as opposed to back then a lot of it was the eye test and the feel test Ooh, that's a great point yeah you're right when you were first coming up like data analytics like all the cameras and stuff that really wasn't a thing um, what is like one of the things that you wish you had known like earlier on in your career? Was there something that as you, you know, cause you had a pretty lengthy MLB career. Did like, did you figure something out about your game or did you learn a stat or something that you wish you would have known like five years before? Oh man, I wish I would have known how to strike more guys out for sure. So when I, when I first signed, it was still like throw the fastball down and away, get ground balls. And now the game has really developed into fly balls, swing and miss fastballs up in the zone. Strikeouts and walks are fine, but we want more strikeouts. We're fine giving up homers as opposed to in 2009, it was much more, the sinker was more in style. So I wish I could have had some of the data then. I don't know if it changes some of the outcomes of my career. There were certain things that I just couldn't do with the baseball that guys can do now that um, they just certainly have more ability to do it than I did. Absolutely. Yeah. There's, there's so much data and analytics out there available. Like, you, you know, every, every, every organization, like the Orioles, I'm like an Orioles fan. So like their old GM and old regime, they, they preached a whole different set of everything. And when Michael Elias came in there, they, yep. they got all analytical, all. Yeah. So it's just fascinating hearing like the breakdown of how like 10 years ago, it's way more different. Um, 
I want to go back to your draft though, because ninth overall pick by the, uh, by the Detroit Tigers, I was reading that like they they liked you because of your makeup and how it kind of was similar to their some their starters they had at the time like Verlander and Porcello. Like, what were the pre-draft conversations like between you and the Tigers back then? And and did you know you were stepping into a place where you know you, you had a, some familiarity with with some of these guys? Honestly, there wasn't a ton of truly pre-draft conversations. I think there's more conversations now that guys have because they have the combine before the draft where teams can really get a better sense. When I got drafted, teams did come to my house the offseason before my senior year of high school. I can actually remember when the Tigers came to my house, David Chad, who was the scouting director at the time, and I think moved up to become either the assistant to the GM or another front office role. But at the time, he was a scouting director. He came to my house to do kind of a sit down and just get to know the family. At the time, I was committed to the University of North Carolina. I had an older brother that was playing baseball at the University of Missouri. So my parents had two flags out in front of our house, and one was a North Carolina flag and one was a Mizzou flag. I remember David being like, did you guys just post that flag out there today for me when I'm walking in saying that you're going to go to school? And I didn't even think anything of it, but it's a funny story as I look back on it now. Maybe it gave me a little bit more leverage. Oh, my gosh. Absolutely. Yeah, it's it, it must have been such a, a whirlwind of a time when you think back to that that, that period of your life there. Um when you did get to Detroit, like, were you able to pick the brains of some of those like starters, like I mentioned, like Verlander, Porcello, like they they had they were on the World Series run back then during those years, but yep. um, were you able to, to pick the brains of any of those guys? Man, we had such a good team, uh, such a good group of veteran guys. Which, to answer your question, yes, but if you compare it to even today's game, I think that's one of the things that's often missing. When I got to Detroit. And even big league spring training, my first year, I'm 18 years old. I had the opportunity to go to big league spring training. I walk in this clubhouse and there's guys like Miguel Cabrera, Maglio Ordonez, Victor Martinez, Miguel Cabrera, Justin Verlander, Rick Porcello, Max Scherzer. And we had some really, really good players that had had some previous success. Some of these guys hadn't had quite the success that they've had now. But there was a ton of guys that you could just learn from, both through talking to them and watching, which is an interesting concept when you look at the game today. You mentioned you're an Orioles fan. Justin, and if you look at the Orioles now, probably the most one of the most veteran guys in the team might be somebody like Cedric Mullins, who's had a couple of really good years, but hasn't been in the big leagues for 10 plus years, yet they're still able to have a lot of success. So it's it's interesting to see how the dynamics changed over the last couple of years in the big leagues. I, I like the idea. You, might, I'm going to stick on the Orioles theme there because they brought in Kyle Gibson, and he's been around the block a little bit. He has yeah, a lot true. of you know, dirt in his spikes. And I, I'm just wondering, like, how much of an impact a guy like him would have on that very, very young staff? Like, is it true? Like are, are, are veteran pitchers like more, I know it's, are they more apt to, to give more like advice? Do the guys seek that out? Cause is that, is, does that actually happen? Or is that something that from the fans that we don't know a ton about? Yeah, it definitely happens. Somebody like Kyle Gibson. So Kyle's a great pitcher has been around a long time. Most of the guys that are getting to the big leagues now understand how the data works they understand what they need to do so from a true coaching perspective i don't know how much benefit there is of having veterans where i do think the veterans play an absolutely critical role in this though is going through a major league season one it's 162 games it's a really long season there's so many ups and downs and just having somebody else to lean on and talk to about experiences along the way at some point whether you have a cy young season or you're the worst pitcher on the roster you're going to have ups and downs and being able to figure out, okay, emotionally, how do I bounce back from that really bad start? Or how do I keep my foot on the gas once I have a really good start? That's where I think the veterans do really make a huge impact on rosters, especially when like the Orioles have 
arguably one of the most talented, if the most talented roster in all of Major League Baseball, but they're also really young. So making sure that guys understand there's going to be big swings along the course of the season and how do we navigate those? Right. Yeah. I'm, I'm always fascinated by that. Cause yeah, you're right. From, from a fan who's never been in the locker room's perspective, you always think that like, Oh, these guys must be gravitating to him just because he's yeah. older. But like, it, it's cool to hear that that's actually kind of the case. No, um, definitely. Yeah. No. Kate, I want, I want to get you to jump in here. What do you got? Yeah. I was staying with that from a veteran standpoint. Do you think that oftentimes like having a lot of young players on the team that actually helps to their advantage because they like really want to make a big impact like the Orioles. Then you have teams, I'm a Yankee fan, but then you have teams like the Yankees that are very veteran heavy. And that's almost, it's, it's difficult for the coaches to try and train them and coach them and make those critiques because they've been in the major leagues for 10 plus years. It's like anything else. There's pros and cons to it. If you look at the Yankees, the benefit that they have is at some point they'll probably be in the postseason. Many of those guys have experienced the postseason before. I don't, think you can quite quantify that because when you're in that big setting in that big stage and you have to make the big pitch if you've been there before it's a lot easier to execute that pitch than if you haven't whereas the Orioles guys the benefit that they have is sometimes they're they're too naive to even know what's going on they're excited to be there they're earning a spot on a future roster so yeah I mean their foot is on the gas 24 7 they haven't made big money yet so they want to get to the next contract so there's definitely pros and cons to it. I think it's interesting how the coaching staffs are probably shaped in a certain way to help facilitate the players that they have. I think the Yankees just hired Sean Casey to be their hitting coach, which I don't know Sean personally, but being a baseball fan growing up, I watched him play a lot. I think it's an awesome hire just given that he has a ton of experience. These guys need more mental and emotional experience. Than they do need like the tactical tools because they've been around a long time. Right. And kind of sticking with that, do you find that – they said Sean Casey, they believe is going to be more of like an old school approach as opposed to like all the launch angles and the statistics. And I know we were touching on that a little bit in the beginning. Have you found almost a disadvantage currently in baseball with the increase in statistics, launch angle, velocity, all of those metrics that the players need to look at when they're going up to the plate? I do think from a team perspective, the teams need to be rooted in data you know, the Orioles are a great example. When when they changed their regime and they went to the more data-based approach, you could almost say that within three to five years, they're going to be a lot better than where they were today. Just because I'm a huge believer in the numbers, whether you like it or not, the numbers don't lie. But at the same time, having that balance of the old school versus the new school is really important because there's still a massive human element in baseball. There's a massive human element of when you've gone three for three and you're going up to the plate for the fourth time, chances are you're going to be a lot more confident than if you're over for your last six with five punch outs. It's the same way as a pitcher. You know, if you had a great start the start before, yes, you want the data for the next start. But when you step on the field, your confidence level is already higher than it would be if you gave up seven runs to start before. Right. Were you someone that was like looking at a lot of the stats? And I know they probably didn't have like the iPads back then. Like we see Garrett Cole literally sitting in the dugout glued to yeah. the iPad in between innings. Do you think you would have done that if that, if you had that technology presented to you? Cause I feel like some players are like, no, I don't even, I don't even want to know. I don't even want to know what's going on. I feel good. I just want to go back out there. Some guys are more feel I've always liked numbers. So I would love okay. if there's any way for you to potentially get any sort of advantage, especially at that level, I think you're, you're silly not to take it. Now, some guys would rather rely on teammates and coaches to help build the game plan, and they just want to go out and execute the game plan and have a clear frame of mind. For me, the numbers always help. So I think 
the more information you can give a guy, if they can handle it and know how to use it, it's going to be beneficial. Cool. Justin? One thing I've always been curious about, uh, you, so the Boris Corporation, what was your representation throughout your career? Um, he's been in the bet, like the Boris Corp and Scott Boris have been like the top of the top of the game for so many years. Like, what was your experience like having him as your agent? And, and like, what does him and his office do so well that like players gravitate towards him? Oh, that's a loaded question. You know, one, they, they've been around a long time. And the reason why that matters, especially in professional sports, is if you look at the big, the, the top, top contracts, the upper echelon contracts, a Bryce Harper, a Steven Strasburg, a Max Scherzer, these are contracts that are generally negotiated between the agent and the owner of the team. So Scott has relationships not only with the GM and the front office, but also the ownership group. Because when somebody's writing a check for $300 million, generally the GM doesn't have full approval just to sign off on that. They need to get the ownership involved. So I think one, being around and having the reputation that Scott has is beneficial. The second thing that I would mention that often doesn't get talked about is the part of the reason why I personally believe that a lot of the Boris Corp guys will get paid more money than maybe somebody else is because the track record of guys that they have is better than probably any other agency. If you look at big contracts they've signed and performing on those big contracts. I mean, one of the best big contracts of all times, Matt Holiday with the Cardinals, he signed, I think a seven year deal and really outperformed that in contract almost every single year. If you look at a guy like Garrett Cole, he's outperformed that contract pretty handily with the Yankees, even though he's making $36 million a year. If you look at Max Scherzer, he outperformed a contract that paid him $210 million. So they have this track record of not only getting guys big deals, but those guys coming in and delivering. And I think that goes all the way down to the guys that help scout guys at the amateur level for them, really trying to find the best players for them because it helps to build that overall brand that they have now. That's such a great point. This might be kind of like a dumb question, but like the Boris Corp represents like a large percentage of most of like the athletes in baseball. Like how, how often does Scott personally get involved? Like with, negotiations does does he have a lot like a large team of people doing it or is he himself the one that's like getting down in the nitty-gritty negotiating i don't know if scott sleeps i mean i think he 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 lives and breathes baseball and you know i can only speak to my own personal experiences i mean they they did right by me every step of the way um they earned me a lot more money in baseball than some of my performances dictated i think and I'm super appreciative of, of all the work they did to one, to help me get those contracts, but also protect me along the way. So the long and short answer to your question is I think Scott is really involved in everything that they do. Now they have a great team of people. There's a ton of people there that, that help keep the engine rolling and do outstanding work as well. Is, is the Boris Corp, do, do they help players post-career? I'm not sure what that would look like, but is, are they staying involved with guys even after they retire and move on from the game? Again, I'll speak to my own experiences. They've been really helpful for me. I think as much so because a lot of the people that they've hired, including Scott, were very high level baseball players in the first place. The majority of the people that they've hired inside the company played professional baseball, played in the big leagues. So they've all had the experience of at some point they transitioned out of baseball. So being able to have other experiences to lean on and learn from and say, okay, well, I did it this way. Here's one thing that I wish I would have done differently was really helpful for me when I initially transitioned out of playing. Okay. Yeah. Makes complete sense to me. Uh, go ahead, Kate. So take it back a little bit more to your career now heading into the majors. 
read that while the Tigers went on to win the pennant in 2012, you were sent down to the Marlins. I've always been very fascinated in the mental aspect of the sport. How do you, how did you navigate that back then? Like, especially, you know, you're watching a team that you just played on go on into the world series and then now you're on a different team. Just what was that like for you during that time? Well, naive me at 21, I think I was at the time I, so I get called up. I made two starts, I believe. I think the second start was against the White Sox. I got my first big league win that moved us into the first place of the American League Central. I had very little to do with that outside of like one game. I think we scored a bunch of runs, so I got the win. But then the next day I get traded to the Marlins. So I go from first place in the American League Central to I believe we were in either second to last or last place um, in the National League East with the Marlins. Not only do I get traded, but then I get sent to AAA immediately. So naive me was on like, what, what is this? What is happening right now? I just went from the first place team. I'm in the big leagues to now I'm in AAA um, with the team that's in last place and not really understanding all the different dynamics that go into player development. Yeah, I find that so interesting. My dad played college baseball and he was drafted out of college. And I remember him saying like it was ultimately he was 23 years old and going up against, you know, 19 year olds. And he said, there's just like no rhyme or reason sometimes like they can't even actually give you the exact reason why you're getting sent back down or released ultimately. Is that something that's frustrating at that level or something that you think you just have to kind of like suck it up and accept it? There's so many factors that come into play. So many of the factors that come into play are outside of the guy's control. So for me, being a first round pick, I had the blessing of, I call it, you have 10 lives because they paid you enough money. The team's committed to you enough. They really want to see you succeed. So if you struggle in year one, you're going to get an opportunity in year two. If you struggle in year two, you're going to get an opportunity in year three versus the guy that gets picked later in the draft. If he struggles in the first three months, he might be out. And some of these factors are, you know, it's an un- the deck is stacked in a certain way towards a certain type of player. And that's just the way the minor leagues is. It's not fair. Um, it's kind of like a semblance of life in general, but very accelerated. So I think it's something that guys just have to learn to deal with. There's certain things that are going to be outside of your control in professional sports. You got to suck it up and move on. If you want to, if you want to do something else, there's plenty of people that would switch places with you. Justin. You've been somebody that's had the opportunity to play for so many great managers throughout the course of your career. And there's a couple that stood out to me when I was looking through, you know, the teams that you've played on. Uh, one was Jim Leland. And I know you, like you talked about, you weren't in Detroit for very long. Um, but I mean, he's like a legend of the game. Like, like I said, it was a very brief time, but what do you remember most about Jim being around him and just the way he managed the ball game? Very old school in the way he approached it. But I think the one thing that made, that made Jim such a good manager was he had the respect of the clubhouse. I know people talk about that in the media, like, what does that actually mean? But what it means is when you lose a tough game and the manager walks to the clubhouse and says a quick line to all the guys, the guys are actually listening and, and taking that in and letting that resonate. And that means a ton in the big league clubhouse. You're, you're dealing with guys that are making anywhere from you know, $750,000 to $25 million. These are guys that are put on a pedestal in a lot of aspects of their life. So to have a leader that they can look to that every single one of those guys in the locker room is going to respect and listen to is really important. I think it can't be underestimated, especially in today's game where, you know, with social media and everything else, these guys are superstars. And that that's the thing that always resonated with me with Jim was he had the respect of the clubhouse, every single guy in there. Yeah. I, I love just some of like the, you know, 
the the less formal stories about Jim just just you know smoking heaters in the dugout and yeah. It's, I, I was going to say that too. I can remember I can remember that when my big league debut. It was like a hundred degrees. It was a day game. And I would sit in the tunnel and I can remember he was smoking in the tunnel and I'm like, I can't sit here anymore. Um, which was the first time I'd ever experienced that in a, in a baseball setting. Oh yeah. Sean Casey, I know we talked about it earlier, but his Jim Leland story where he interrupted his smoke break is it's an old timer. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with that one, but yeah, it's, 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 it's great. It was, but yeah, he was in the tunnel smoking. He had to tell me he was hurt. <laughs> Got it. Um, in that same vein, though, Dusty Baker, another one of those guys that's like old school players love playing for him. You had him in D.C. for a little bit. Um, the same kind of thing. Like, what, what did Dusty do so well that like, I mean, he finally got his World Series ring. Like, what, what was the Dusty Baker managerial experience like? The thing that always stood out to me about Dusty was he lets guys be themselves. He's not trying to overcomplicate anything. He's not trying to control anything he's been around the game long enough that he understands that each guy's going to go about his routine a different way. And if he needs to have a conversation with a guy, he can have it, but he's going to let the players play. Whereas some of the new age technology and data, I think can be a bit overwhelming in terms of we want guys to do it this certain way, as opposed to just realizing that, you know, the team drafted a guy to produce because he'd been doing it a certain way. The team signed a guy because he'd been doing it a certain way. Let the players play sometimes is the best strategy. And even on some of the other teams that you've played on, were there other characteristics of managers that you had that really stood out to you as being like conducive to a winning environment? I got the opportunity to play for Joe Madden a little bit. Now I was hurt the year that he was managing the Cubs, but it was there in spring training. The way that he went about it was just so drastically different than anybody else. We had a ton of fun. It was very light and loose, but at the same time, we worked really hard. We did everything we needed to do on the field, but he made he made the environment of wanting to come to the field, something that was very conducive for guys. We would do fun stuff in the clubhouse before we went out to stretch. I remember one, one time at stretch, I think he had like a DJ or a band out there. So just things that helped to take things that were more day-to-day minutia of professional baseball and keep guys more engaged. I love that. Yeah. I, I have heard some of those stories where he had like snakes coming through the dugout, just like some of those, some of the Joe Madden things that you would have. I was just was so jealous of the people that got to play for him. That's, that yeah. sounds like the, the best vibes guy ever. Um, Kate, what do you have? Yeah. Kind of sticking with that. Um, just the clubhouse vibes in general. I know that Joey Votto has attested this year that the Reds, their clubhouse vibes are just insane. Kind of reminded me of the 1998 Yankees. I remember reading Jack Curry's book on how their clubhouse vibes were just, they were always in sync. They were always on the same page. Having played on so many different teams, can you attest to that, that like the clubhouse vibes do really play a huge role in how the team does that year? Totally. And it's so hard to put your finger on what makes it that way. But I think it goes back to the conversation we were having earlier about some of the veteran guys. There's always these, you would call it, it's cliche, but the glue guys, these guys that maybe they're not the the highest performer on the field. They're not the guy that's playing the all-star game this weekend, but they're the guy that everybody's looking to as the veteran leader in the clubhouse, or they're the guy that's going to keep it loose after you've lost three in a row, or they're the guy that's going to keep the spirits high when it doesn't go your way on the field. So, but it's such a hard thing to put your finger on because the analytics can't point to who that person is. And it could be one or two people mixing and meshing in a certain way that creates this entire environment or vibe in the clubhouse. Do you have a favorite team that you played on that you thought the vibes were just the best? 
When I was with the Nationals in, I guess it was 2017, we had a stretch where we run like 11 games in a row. And for me, that was the best. You could just feel the energy when you came to the clubhouse that you felt like, like there's no way we're going to lose. And then I remember like Ryan Zimmerman was on this amazing stretch. It was like every time this guy got up, he was hitting like 600 over this 11 game stretch with like five homers. So every time he got up, it was like the exit velocity was like 100 miles an hour. Scherzer and Strasburg, every time they pitched, they were going seven plus innings. I mean, as a, at the time I was pitching out of the bullpen. So I can remember one day when Max was pitching, it was like everybody in the bullpen, it was like, there's no way we're getting in. Like the closer might come in in the ninth. But I just remember that stretch of time being like, there's, you could just feel the energy in the room of the confidence level was so high of all the guys. That's awesome. Yeah, I feel like you're on top of the world. I love that. Um, but going back a little bit, special moment in your career. I read this. I said, this is so cool. I got to ask him about this. June 29th, 2013, you threw a one-run complete game. Now, for me, I think that's the coolest thing in the world, especially because like the current stage of baseball that we're in right now, not a lot of complete games unless they're like a combined one. Is that a huge moment that stands out for you personally in your career? I think so. I mean, it was one of definitely one of the better games I had in the big leagues. And I think going, even at the time, a complete game was relatively rare, not as rare as it is now with pitch counts and the way the data works around going through the order, but certainly a time when I was pitching well, I had good defense behind me, things went my way that game. I had a couple double play balls I can remember. But yeah, I mean, I, I think any performance you have at that level, that's positive in that light is something that you'll remember forever. That's awesome. I know I was doing a, a deep dive on just like all the complete game leaders and it, it's, it's so high. And then as the years go on, it just gets drastically lower. Yeah. Do you think it's something baseball could ever maybe go back to, or is because the postseason's so much longer now you need guys to go so much further than they had to go back then? I don't know. I grew up watching Roy Halliday was one of my favorite pitchers growing up. And I can remember one year he had, I forget how many complete games, but it was a lot. I mean, way more than guys have now. And I think there's something to watching baseball as a selfishly as a pitcher. I love watching a guy be able to go through the order three times and just there's so much tactical stuff that's going on with the game inside the game there that I do think has been lost a little bit with data and analytics. Nothing bores me more than watching a team run a starting pitcher out there for three to four innings and then go reliever, reliever, reliever for the rest of the game. Even though I know the numbers would say that their chances of winning the game are higher doing that, it's it's a little boring to watch. Yeah, absolutely. I remember Nolan Ryan used to say, no, my job is to go in and throw until I can't throw anymore. My dad yeah. used to always tell me that story, which I love. But Justin, go ahead. We interrupt this episode to bring you a word from the official sponsor of Not For Long Media and the Breaking Bass podcast, the original Fudge Kitchen. It is a staple of the Jersey Shore with six locations in Cape May, Wildwood, North Wildwood, Stone Harbor, and Ocean City. The original Fudge Kitchen makes all of their fudge in-store guaranteeing a delicious product, so stop by and let them know that Not For Long Media and Breaking Bats sent you. Check them out online at fudgekitchenswithans.com as they are shipping fudge and sweet treats all across the country. Now back to the episode. Some of those, it's some of those old Marlins teams that you're back, you're on in the, like the early 2010s. Like I, I remember just like you know that was the early days of like Giancarlo Stan and and that incredible outfield with like Yelich and Ozuna. Like what was that like just being on that team, seeing some of these guys that like are still killing it to this day? I don't think at the time we we quite realized the level of talent they had. You know, I can remember Yelich got called up at this. I think it was the same year that JT Realmuto got called up. 
Ozuna was there, hadn't quite broken out yet. Um, Stanton had been there a while and had some really good years. So everybody knew that he was already at start at the time. We had Jose Fernandez, um, Nathan Avaldi, who I think should be starting the all-star game. Um, shout out to Nate. But yeah, I mean, there's a lot of good players in that team. And it's been fun to see those guys continue to succeed in their careers. Jose Fernandez, I'm glad you brought him up. What what was your like memory of playing with him? Like, like can you take me back to what when you and him were teammates back on those old Marlins teams? Yeah, uh, man, it was awesome, awesome person, an awesome teammate, and the best pitcher that I've ever seen. I the story I would use for Jose Fernandez was I can remember we were in Kansas City, and at the time it was his rookie year. He was mostly fastball breaking ball wasn't really throwing a ton of change-ups i can remember the pitching coach was getting on him about throwing more change-ups and he made some comment like well i'll just go out next next start and throw change-ups and he like went out and he threw like eight shutout innings and struck out like five guys on a change-up and he hadn't been throwing change-ups all season but just had this amazing ability one he believed in himself probably more than anybody i've ever played with and two had the amazing ability just to adapt in the moment and just rise to every occasion i love that that's such a great story too um, I did want to jump ahead though, because, uh, so our third member of this podcast, Brian O'Grady, he just got back from playing in Korea. I saw that you also played in the KBO. Um, so w- was that a tough decision to, you know, when your baseball career here in America wasn't going the way you thought it would to decide to go up and, and play overseas in, in Korea? It, it was more of a tough decision for me because I had young kids at the time. So thinking about uprooting my family and moving to Korea sounded pretty daunting but for me, it was more of an exciting opportunity. I was trying to make some changes to my repertoire. I was trying to learn how to strike some more guys out. I'd gone to driveline that off season. It was going to give me an opportunity to start every five days. And for me, I felt like, okay, this is really an inflection point. If I can go there and some of these results can stick, maybe I'll have the opportunity to come back. If I go there and I really like it, maybe I'll have the opportunity to stay. If I go there and I don't pitch as well as I thought, you know, maybe it's time to do something else. So for me, it was an exciting time. I mean, I really enjoyed my time in Korea. I would tell any guy that was, I would describe myself as a 4A player at that point. I was in between the big leagues and AAA. I was getting, every year I would get a couple opportunities in the big leagues, but they were few and far between unless I you know, punched out 10 guys in seven innings. I was probably getting sent down within the next week or so. So it was a great opportunity for me. What's, what's the biggest difference between facing guys in America and over in Korea? You know, the game is a little bit different. The defense behind you is certainly not what the level of defense here in the big leagues is. Now the level of hitter is not the same as what the level of hitter is here. I think the biggest adjustment, though, is everything else that comes with it. I have so much respect for guys that come to the United States from the Dominican Republic and Venezuela, from any of the Asian countries after playing in Korea, because you're just experiencing this entirely new dynamic of life. It's a new culture. You don't speak the language. You don't really understand how they interact with each other. So you're trying to understand culturally how you fit in. And even during the game, like how they react to good things and bad things is different than how we react in America and what's considered normal is different there. So I think that would be the biggest adjustment. Did you, did you rely on, I think each team over in Korea has three or four American guys. Um, did you, did you like lean on your, your teammates from America to kind of help you know, bring you along and, and smooth that process of that transition out? Yeah. So when I first went over there, my two teammates from America was one was Joe Wheland, who's uh, become a great friend. And then Jeremy Hazelbaker, who again, has become a great friend. 
Jeremy had gotten released like 10 days into the season. So for a while, it was just me and Joe. He was also a starting pitcher. So, I mean, we basically did everything together um, for the entire time we were there. And then Preston Tucker came over, which is uh, Kyle Tucker's Preston's younger brother with the Astros. I think Preston might be back in the States now playing, but he had a, he had a really good, like two or three year stretch over there. I think he's, I think the Padres have him. I feel like, yeah, I think, I think he's back in the, the majors at some capacity. Um, yeah, no, that's, that's fascinating to hear. Cause yeah, I would absolutely do the same thing. I, I would lean on those guys as pillars of support for this, this thing. That's like really hard to do. Yeah. Um, all right. I wanted to shift gears. Uh, we want to talk about your, your current job now, some financial stuff. Uh, I'll let Kate start us out. Yeah. So I find everything that you do now, super intriguing. As you mentioned before, we started recording his sweater is phenomenal. We love it. Can you tell us a little bit more about how you got into this? Because I know for a lot of athletes, when they come out, they're super confused. They're not really sure how to navigate life without baseball. So what drew you to the financial aspect? Yeah, for me, it probably starts at the beginning. My mom has an accounting background. My dad owned a small business. My parents raised me and my brothers to think about baseball as something that we did, but it wasn't our identity. So I've always loved things outside of baseball. I signed for a lot of money at 18 years old and was kind of thrust in this position of learning how to manage money, asking questions, hiring the right people around me. And I probably knew a few years before I got done, I, I would really like to do something with personal finance. I don't know what that would is going to be. But when I got done, one of the best things I did was I basically took my Rolodex and my network of people and took everybody that was willing to get coffee with me or jump on the phone and ask them about, hey, you're successful at this thing that is kind of in and around finance. Would you do that thing again? Or what, what advice would you give yourself if you were going back and doing it over again? Which was really helpful for me just to take this position of, I know I don't know what I don't know. And these people have, have done this thing before. So that was what it looked like for me. It kind of started at the beginning and then led to me interviewing some people that were already successful and seeing what they were doing. I'm so happy you said that because oftentimes I get a lot of people that say, you know, like, how do you get your foot in the door in sports and really any industry in general and just networking and exactly what you said, like calling people and saying, can I just pick your brain for an hour? Just like an hour of your yep. time, like not asking for a job. I just want advice on what you think I should do and just making those little connections because down the road, it could ultimately lead to something bigger. Yeah, I think too, you know, to your point there, doing it in a way, especially in, in today's day and age, you have the ability to access really anybody you want in the world with social media. Now, that doesn't mean they're going to be easy to access. It doesn't mean they're going to respond to the message you send them. But if you do it in a really unique way, most people are going to respond. And I, I think this would be a message to anybody listening. Like if you want to work in sports or you want to work in entertainment or you want to work in any industry that you feel like it's hard to crack into and you think, okay, well, who can I reach out to? You know, everybody's available in some form or capacity for the most part on social media. You just got to be creative in how you want to get in front of those people. Yes, absolutely agree. But I want to stick with the athlete side because I know you have two, you do entrepreneurs and then athletes as well specifically with athletes with the NCAA changing the rules for college athletes. Now they're allowed to brand themselves, monetize. How do you think that's going to look in the future for young athletes that are allowed to now do this and make money off of their own brand? First of all, I think it is great because baseball, not so much, right? Not that it's not great, but it's not as big of an impact. I, there's guys in college baseball that are making some level of significant money from NIL, but it's not the level of NIL that some a college football at Alabama would make. 
But where I think it's really beneficial is there's a lot of people, a lot of athletes that their biggest moment in their sports career, it's going to be their college career. It's not going to be their professional career. You know, Alabama football would be a great example. They're playing on ESPN six to seven times a year. These guys are making a ton of money for everybody but themselves. And for the most part, most of them are going to have long NFL careers. So I think it's great that athletes are have the ability to hopefully have a free market where they can get some level of their value back. Now, I know that the school is providing a scholarship. I know there's value in all the training that they're getting. I understand that. But, um, you know, if you have coaches that are making, you know, eight to $10 million a year, if ESPN is making a bunch of money to produce the game, if the NCAA is making a bunch of money to run the league, I think the players should make money too. Yeah, absolutely. And I know a, a big brand right now over time, they actually started a basketball league where they have high school basketball players promoting them. They're helping them grow their social media presence and basically make money off the players as well, but they do get commission. Do you see other sports doing that as well? Like, do you think that could maybe be the future? Like you'll have high school baseball players entering almost like their own league so that they could get um, picked up easier to the big leagues. Maybe I, I think basketball is probably a little different just because the path to the NBA is different than the path to major league baseball we just had the MLB draft. Most of these guys outside of maybe the top two or three picks are going to be in the minor leagues for at least a year. Most of them, two, three, four, five years. Some of them will never get to the big leagues. And they go from being superstars two days ago to being another minor leaguer that maybe you don't really hear about unless you're a huge fan of the team and you follow the top 30 prospect list. Versus the NBA, most of the guys that get drafted are either in the NBA right off the bat, or they're, you know, one injury away from being in the NBA um, coming up from the developmental league. So I don't know if baseball will ever go the same route as like overtime's doing, but I love the fact that they're building their personal brand. I think it's super important and something that's often missed for athletes. Yeah, absolutely. And ultimately, why did you get into the side of things? Like I know that some people would rather do like coaching, managing, stuff like that. Like, what was it that drew you so much to the financial aspect? I know you mentioned that, you know, your dad owns a small yeah. business, mom's an accountant, but was there something else that really drew you to that as well? I think it was a combination of my own experiences and really feeling like there was a specific group of people that I could be the best in the world at helping. I love a book by Jim Collins called Good to Great. And in the book, he talks about this concept of the hedgehog. The hedgehog isn't great at everything, but he's amazing at one thing. So if I think about in the financial services industry and financial advising in general, like who's the group of people that I feel like I could help the most? And that's really the athletes and entrepreneurs. They're dealing with a lot of the same complexities that I dealt with. And then to your point about coaching, what this allows me to do is it allows me to stay involved in the game to be hopefully a resource to some families. I try to do that through social media and through content on Twitter but I'm not involved in the day-to-day -day of it. I, I did that long enough as my wife can attest to, I was ready for a break of the day-to-day -day of professional baseball. And I don't think coaching would ever be something that that would be of interest to me. Dustin? What's the most like common mistake that you see when with, with young athletes getting all this money right off the bat? Like we talk about the MLB draft, guys are getting upwards of $10 million. Like what are some of the most common things that you from your position now see that's that they're doing wrong? You know, I don't know if I would title it as doing wrong, but it's just a lack of education around the opportunity that they have in front of them. It is so hard as an 18 to a 22 year old kid to understand that if I do, I would call it the blocking and tackling of personal finance, the basics and getting things set up the right way and getting money invested and letting it start to grow 
the impact that it can have not only on them, but their family and for future generations for a lot of these guys, whether they make another dollar in baseball or not. Now, on the flip side of that, if you sign for a few million bucks and you don't do some of the blocking and tackling on the upfront, you can be in a position where you get done playing and you can have a lot of regret over the fact that you earned all this money and you don't have a ton to show for it. It's fascinating. So we had Richie Schaefer, who was a first round pick by the Rays, I think like 2015. Um, he told his story back. He first round draft pick, got all this money. And then when he was going through the minors, he paid himself a salary of like 20K a year, something comically low. But he's glad he yeah. did it because he said that like, you know, it allowed him to, you know, change his lifestyle and have all that money from his first round still available to him now. Um, where, how did you kind of handle your money? I know you signed one of the largest high school draft like bonuses out of, you know, you know what I mean? Like, how did you yeah. handle all that money at so young in your case? Very similar. I, I didn't spend a ton of money. Um, I lived very frugally for the first couple of years. And frankly, I didn't have a lot of things that I wanted. You're so busy with baseball you know, at the time I, I had a car, so I was like, okay, I got that. I'm moving around a lot, so I don't need or want to buy a house. I'm just renting everywhere I go. You know, outside of getting Chipotle or Subway or Jimmy John's on the way to the field, there wasn't a ton of stuff I was going to buy. I'm not super flashy, so I wasn't going to go out and buy a bunch of Rolexes or anything like that, which benefited me in the long run because I was able to invest the money and, and let it start to grow. Absolutely. And, and also, this MLB draft question, but like, when, like, did you know at the time that you wanted to have that large amount of money given to you or like that you were trying to vie for however much money it was at the time? Like, did, did that turn other teams off? And did, was there only a certain amount of teams that you knew could be able to afford your, it was like 5 million bucks or something. But like, how did the monetary aspect of you wanted to be, make all that money out of high school? Like, how did that play into your draft? Yeah. Well, good marketing brings in the right people and repels the wrong people. Right. So if you're an athlete and you're coming into the draft, you're really marketing yourself. And to your point, there were certain teams that I didn't want to draft me because I knew they wouldn't pay me the money that I was going to take for me to sign out of high school. So you're constantly kind of jockeying and positioning yourself in a way that you're hopefully getting drafted by a team that's willing to meet whatever the number is that is for you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, your job now, like what, what do you enjoy most about the day-to-day -day of the work that you're doing, the wealth management, the advising, like what do you enjoy the most out of all of that? Just the conversations, um, hearing what the people we're working with are doing. I think it helps to push me. I describe the people that we work with are people that bet on themselves. So it's athletes, entrepreneurs, you know, it's executives at big companies where they in some form or fashion have really bet on themselves. And it's really cool to work with a group of people like that because you ultimately become your circle. So my circle is people that are constantly pushing and constantly trying to get better, which in turn makes me better. Absolutely. Uh, all right. I had some fun rapid fire, but I'll, I'll turn it over to Kate uh, for any last, last things. No, I don't really have anything else. I just wanted to say, love that people you surround yourself with. Absolutely agree. Um, well, cool. All right. So fun, quick, rapid fire, then we'll let you run. Uh, you were around Max Scherzer at a couple different points in your career in Detroit and in DC. What was your favorite memory story or interaction that you remember from playing with Mad Max? Oh man. He's just, I don't know if I have a favorite single story, but he's just such a competitor. Something that always stood out to me about Max was, I remember he made this comment to me about confidence, that confidence is a choice. And every day when you show up to the field, you either choose to have it or not. It was a line that always stuck with me because you're going through a certain situation where there's going to be highs and lows through a through 162 game season. 
I think he's one of the best guys in the world at being able to truly flip the switch and turn it on when he gets on the field. What, what's he like off the field? He's still pretty intense, but he's more, he can, he does a good job of being able to turn it on, on the field and turn it off, off the field, which is important. Absolutely. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. I guess it'd be hard to keep the, that level of intensity on the mound, just like in day-to-day life. I feel like that would yeah. be very taxing. It'd be, it'd be exhausting. <laughs> um, throughout your career, did you have a, a teammate or a couple teammates that were the funniest, always made you laugh? Funny teammates, man. I don't know if anybody really comes top of mind. I mean, some of the, some of the guys, especially some of the guys from Venezuela and the Dominican Republic, I think um, are more easygoing and more, they have good vibes, right? Like they're dancing, they're having fun in the clubhouse. They're not taking life too seriously. So I definitely appreciate a lot of those guys I played with um, from the Dominican and from Venezuela, you know, turning the music up loud, keeping the locker room light and loose uh, goes a long way the best um what is the most memorable at bat you had in your career did you ever have one where guys were taking you 15 20 pitches deep was there like what's the what's the what's the the one that stands out um i can remember i don't remember much about my big league debut but i remember bobby abreu in the first inning hit a triple off me i think i got like the first two outs right away and bobby abreu hit a triple and i was like oh man like and i think the next batter was tory hunter who I had grown up watching Torrey Hunter. He'd been in the big leagues for like 10 years at the time. And I think I got him like 2-0 or 3-1. It was a total hitter's count. I threw like a fastball right down the middle. I, I can still remember he like popped it up, I think to the shortstop. And just thinking like, okay, I can do this. Like not every pitch I throw right down the middle is going to get hit for a home run. So uh, I don't know why that's like my memory of my big league debut because there's not many things I remember about it, but I do remember that. That's great. I love that. And in that same kind of vein, like, was there a player that you met or faced that you were like starstruck by? I mean, I grew up in St. Louis. I'm a, I'm a huge, was, was a huge Cardinals fan growing up. So Albert Pujols, um, you know, I mean, he had been in the big leagues for 10 plus years by the time I got to the big leagues. So being able to play against him was, was certainly a surreal moment for me. Ooh, okay. So you mentioned that big Cardinals fan growing up post-playing career do you keep up with a specific team is it guys that you've played with what's your baseball watching experience like now post-career I root for every guy out there because I know how hard it is honestly um I one thing that's not lost on me is one thing that always bothered me when I was playing was announcers might do this or somebody that's around the game they've played but they've been they've been removed for so long that they forget how hard the game is so they talk about it in a way that makes it seem like it's easy. It's not an easy game. And I just have a lot of respect for the guys that are out there. Um, you know, if a guy has a bad outing pitching wise, I feel empathy for him because I know, I know what it's going to feel like that night when he's going to be thinking about that outing in his hotel room. So I root for everybody. Um, I certainly root for the guys I played, played with and, and still call friends today. I love that. Okay. Well, my last question that I always do for the end of these is like, What's the best piece of advice you've ever received? But you mentioned Max Scherzer gave you a really, really good nugget. Is there anybody else? Is there anything else? Could be baseball, life, financial. Is there any other, like, one piece of advice that you carry with you every day? You know, my dad gave me some advice when I first got drafted. Um, I might have it on my – I have a little bookshelf over there, and I think I have it on there. But he gave me some advice about this. He gave me a little bus, and he just said, Jacob, remember who's on your bus. And his point was – for all of us in our lives, there's going to be people that are 
on the bus and off the bus, but really finding the people that are in it for you um, and are in it to see you succeed and are happy and joyous when you succeed and when you don't are still there in your corner is really important. I love that. Dude, this has been incredible. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, I wanted to end though. Where can people find you on Twitter if they want to work with you on the financial side of things? Like, please plug away. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm on Twitter, Instagram, uh, threads now, like everybody else is. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn. Everything's at The Sudden Wealth. So you can find me. I'm most active on Twitter, but I post post on Instagram as well. Absolutely. Highly, highly, highly recommend giving him a follow. Um, thank you so much for your time and continued luck and success uh, with your with your financial advising. Thanks, guys. And before we get out of here, a special thank you to the band Stick Figure for allowing us to use today's intro and outro music.